Welcome to the 191st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Larry Millette, author of Strongwood, a mystery novel. Larry is the author of many Sherlock Holmes mystery novels. He's also the former architectural critic for the St. Paul Pioneer Press and the author of several books on the history of architecture in Minnesota. Stay tuned for my interview with Larry Millette. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Larry Millette, author of Strong Wood, a crime dossier published by the University of Minnesota Press. In addition to Strong Wood, Larry has written several Sherlock Holmes novels, including Sherlock Holmes and the Red Demon and Sherlock Holmes and the Ice Palace Murders. Larry has also written several nonfiction books about the Twin Cities, including the AIA Guide to the Twin Cities. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great. Well, can you read the first couple of pages of your new novel, Strongwood? I certainly will. Um, I'll begin with uh, Addie Strongwood's own account uh, of of the case um, in her own words, and that's part of the way the novel works. So here we go. I will begin by stating that I did not murder Michael Masterson in cold blood, as the calumnies of the press would have it, and that I am in every way a woman wronged. If there does indeed abide in this world some measure of justice, a dubious proposition I am beginning to believe, then it is not I who should be standing trial before the people of Hennepin County, but those who in their low viciousness and cruel cunning abetted in the crimes against me. I feel upon me the heavy weight of falsehood, as did the prophet Isaiah, quote, none calls for justice nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity, unquote. The truth is that I love Michael more than the world will ever know. I gave him my heart, which is the greatest thing a woman has to give, and I gave it to him so completely that I will never be able to give it in that way again. Yet instead of love for Michael, I was met only with treachery on that fateful day in room 413 of the Wyndham Block. My trial is now but a few weeks away, and while I'm hopeful that the truth in all of its mighty splendor will emerge from the proceedings to come, I have decided to take advantage of the offer made to me by Mr. William J. Murphy of the Minneapolis Tribune to write my own account of the events that led to Michael Masterson's death. My attorney, Mr. J. Winston Phelps, who is well known in this city as a champion of justice, has advised me to remain silent until my day in court arrives. But as I am the only person in a position to tell the truth without prejudice or distortion, I believe that I must go ahead and make my case to the public. Untruths have already been piled upon my good name like dirt slung into a freshly dug grave. I do not propose to let men with shovels bury me in their lies. Of all the falsehoods that have circulated since that day which changed my life forever, none is more loathsome than the claim that I planned Michael's killing like some patient spider weaving its web. Well, it's true that I armed myself before going to the Wyndham Block. I did so only for the purpose of defending myself should the need arise. My intent was only to convince Michael to do the right and honorable thing. His response to my heartfelt plea was sudden and brutal, and it was in that moment life or death for me. I chose to defend my life as any man or woman would in such dire circumstances, and had I failed to act, I have no doubt that I would today be among the unremembered dead in the potter's field at Lakewood or some other lonely burial ground. 
It has been reported by the press since my arrest that I was raised as a street waif and was known, in the words of one especially malicious article in the journal, to be a wild and unruly girl destined from an early age to a life of immorality and crime. Nothing could be further from the truth. To set the record straight, I will now describe the early years of my life, which were indeed difficult, but hardly as impoverished and unhappy as certain sensation-minded writers would have made them out to be. That's kind of the the start of the of the book and a couple of pages of Addie's um, statement about about uh, what happened and why she uh, claims to have shot Michael Masterson. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Strongwood, a crime dossier yet, how would you describe the the novel? Well, it's um, it's set in Minneapolis in 1903. Um, it has appearances by uh, Sherlock Holmes and also my own detective, Shadwell Rafferty. But basically, it is an attempt to uh, recreate fictionally sort of the kind of of um, pot-boiling book that was often done after spectacular murder cases in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, so it's presented as a dossier style. It includes Addie's own uh, statements about the cases written in the newspapers. It includes newspaper accounts, uh, diaries, letters, all those sorts of things, and, and direct court testimony, all sorts of things that you would, would find in a book of that sort. So it's all presented as a real-life case. Uh, even though it's all completely fictional, right? And and do you remember what initially sparked your idea for for Strongwood? Well, I I have been interested. I spent many years as a court reporter for the newspapers here in St. Paul and had covered a lot of criminal trials, big criminal trials, some that were quite renowned locally. And um, I, I'd always been struck by how much. Goes on in a trial, and and how the stories vary so widely. How how when when you get into the trial format, uh, versions of events become so different from witnesses, and, and become so difficult to kind of pick out what the truth is. And I I thought this would be a a, 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 a fairly straightforward case in the sense that it it's not a there's no question that she shot that Addie shot. Um, um, the guy. The question is, you know, what was her what was her motive? What was her intent? Uh, what really happened? Was it murder or self defense? And that's a very basic kind of a case, hardly you know an original uh, plot idea. But I, I thought presenting it as a, a documentary style and and giving a sense of how as the case goes on, you learn more and more that that brings more and more into question uh, among all the people who are involved. Um, it. it it becomes kind of, I think, a fascinating look at and how justice works and how difficult it can be to sort out what really, really happens in a he said, she said situation. That's that's really the simple basis of the book is a he said, she said. But once it unfolds and expands, you you start seeing how complicated that becomes. Sure. Sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you've written several Sherlock Holmes novels, and and as you mentioned, Sherlock Holmes has a uh, an appearance in in your new novel. Do you remember when you first encountered or read the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, um, like a lot of people, uh, I had um, somewhere along, probably when I was about twelve in that range, um, acquired the the um, the very common Doubleday. Uh, published set of all the stories and novels, uh, the, the cheap, readily available uh, set of the stories, and um, 
uh, just started tearing through them, you know, and, and found them fascinating. And here I'm a kid sitting in North Minneapolis. What do I know about London? What do I know about uh, Victorian era? What do I know about detectives? And it was all just extremely fascinating to me. I was a great reader as a kid, and, and I just found the stories wonderful and, and you know, went went through the whole thing very, very, very quickly, um, Bull Cannon. And, um, you know, that's something that, that sticks with you, even though, you know, you forget the details over time. I, I, I always liked Sherlock Holmes. I'd read some books about Doyle, and I had read some Sherlockian knockoffs over the years. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people who discovered him fairly early and has, has always loved the character and the stories. Sure. And do you have a favorite Holmes story? Um, probably my all-time favorite is the Red-Headed League, and that's a famous story. Uh, but because of the that sort of masterful uh, deception, which has now become a fairly common plot feature, but I think Doyle was just about the first to kind of offer that sort of shaggy dog kind of a story, and it really was uh, um, a revelation to me when I read it, you know, as a kid, like, oh, so that's... Oh, that's clever. I see. This was all just a, this was all just a front for something else, you know. And and we've seen, you know, that that plot device has been used many, 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 many times before or, or since. And um, and I think Doyle was kind of the guy who um, did that first. And that's I think that's a, one of the great uh, detective stories in the language of Bone Down. Sure. Well, when you when you first read the the stories in that double day edition when you were twelve years old, were were you aware at all of uh, the Sherlockian kind of um, pastiche or fan fiction that, that came? No, after? no, not at all. Yeah, no, not at all. And and you know that's something um, like a lot of mystery writers. I went through a phase, uh, you know, when I was a great mystery reader. I actually, not as big a reader anymore because I've got so much other stuff to do. Um, so many architecture books particularly that take up a lot of my time now. But um, I went through a phase when I read tons of mystery novels, and I really got to love the classic English novels, the, the, the whodunits. And so, you know, Doyle led me to people like Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and John Dixon Carr and, you know, Ellery Queen and some of those classic people. And that's always been, I mean, I read my share of thrillers and, and that sort of thing as well, but I, I always liked the the kind of classic whodunit. Uh, my novel just before this one uh, called The Magic Bullet was my uh, pay-on to John Dixon Carr, a, a very complex locked room mystery, a literal, a literal locked room mystery um, that um, I had a lot of fun with, um, and I always wanted to do one. And um, so I, I, I tend to work in those. I like the historic kinds of fiction. All of my books are uh, historically set in the late 19th, early 20th century, because um, I like that, that period. I know a lot of, about the history of that period, so it's fun to to set mysteries in and, and bring in Holmes uh, and, and other historic characters who will, you know, pass through these books. Sure. And, and what prompted you, I mean, given your, your, you know, as you just mentioned, your, your interest in, in those classic mystery authors, uh, starting with um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, what, what prompted you to try your hand at, at writing a Sherlock Holmes novel? Well, you know, it's funny because at the, I was working at the Pioneer Press, the newspaper here in St. Paul in the 1990s, the same time that uh, John Sanford, when John Camp was his real name, but I know him as John Camp, but, sure. uh, but he was working there. And um, lo and behold, I think it was the early 90s that John um, sold for a lot of money <laughs> his first uh, <laughs> prey book. Uh, 
And, um, and you know, everybody kind of <laughs> got to say, hey, we ought to try that. And, and, um, and so actually, uh, I, like everybody else, I sat down and tried to write a thriller, which wasn't all that bad, but it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a John Sanford quality thriller. And, <laughs> and I, I figured out sometimes you have to, you know, the only way you can figure out what to do is by, first of all, trying what not to do. And, and, um, I realized when I talked to John and kind of took the book apart and looked at it, that it was, it was actually more of a, a mystery novel than a thriller. Sure. Uh, and it was kind of in between the genres, and that's it's hard to to get a book published uh, unless you're a really famous author. That's kind of in between the genre. You have to kind of stick to what is. So I thought, you know, with my love of history and all of that, that maybe it made more sense for me to go into the historic format because I'd written a lot of history books, and um, and that worked out much better for me. I felt much more natural. Uh, in that format than I did trying to write a thriller. So it was kind of John was one of the inspirations. You know, we had a whole group of writers at the Pioneer Press who ended up uh, writing mystery fiction. Chuck Logan, Terry Monsoor, um, Karen Nelson Douglas. Um, I mean, just uh, a group of people that came out of there that were, were talented writers. And so um, that also being in that environment, I think, got me going. And, and I managed to get Viking Penguin was the publisher of the first five Sherlock, so I got a national publisher and had some success with the books, but, you know, nothing like uh, nothing like John's success. So. Sure, sure. Well, well uh, over the over the years and, and, you know, obviously recently with the with the CBS show of um, uh, the Sherlock. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Sherlock show. Um, are there, are there any recent Sherlock novels or, 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 you know, um, uh, other media that, that, that you've, um, that you've liked or, or paid attention to? Well, I, I don't, I don't get to most of the Sherlock's and the novels because there's so many of them. Um, I, you know, I went back to Nicholas Myers and the 7% Solution and some classic books like that. I do like the new British, uh, masterpiece um series the homes the very uh in which they they riff on real uh, Conan Doyle stories but they update them change plot elements give them a slightly different title and i think that new sherlock is uh, is a lot of fun um i don't know if you've seen it uh, um the one that pbs shows but it's um it's really well made um very yes. very complicated plots <laughs> um, and and everybody talks way too fast but beyond that they've they've done a lot of fun things with you know they've they've sort of taken sherlock and 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 kind of pushed him out to the edge of being just about crazy and and you know had a lot of fun with his ability to you know read a person's face and their apparel and all that and and it's it's kind of over the top but it's um it's fun and i think you know i think uh, sherlock should be fun uh, sure, I mean, he's sure. a wonderful character, but you got to have some fun with it, and and that's uh, why we enjoy the story so much. It's just kind of fun watching him operate, and so I, yeah, I do like that a lot. And and the TV, the TV show, which I like, I remember, is okay. I'm not as fond of that as I am of the of the British series. Sure, sure. Well, I'm curious. Have you followed the recent legal rulings about the copyright issues? Uh, about yeah, a little Sherlock? bit. Yeah, and it's it's still a bit fuzzy to me, but. Um, you know, in this country, it's it's less of a problem than it is in England in terms of, I think, with the with the copyright issues, and it's it's gotten kind of, it's always been a, a tangled issue. Uh, but um, you know, through the years, the lawyers at Viking Penguin, you know, said, you know, we don't have any problem with you using the character, and and uh, but 
yeah, it, it may be getting more difficult depending upon how all this gets interpreted in the United States. But, right. um, yeah, and that's hard to say. Um, and there's plenty of, there'll be, I think, continued dispute about that. But, you know, the thing is, the character has been, you know, appropriated for a long, long, long time. Um, the image of Sherlock that we all have in our mind with the, with the, uh, Meerschaum pipe and all of that. That's really from stage plays that were done in the 19th and early 20th century by William Gillette. And he didn't have any permission to do that. You know, <laughs> he just went and did it, and, and a lot of people did. And, and even today, I mean, um, there are just so many pastiches out there, and the character remains so popular. And it ebbs and flows. And right now, I think we're in kind of a high period for Sherlock. Um, It'll tamp down after a while, and and uh, but then it'll it'll pick up again. He's definitely one of the immortal uh, characters in our literature. Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned earlier that you worked at the Pioneer Press. Um, yeah. Ha- had you always wanted to be a writer? What was kind of your path to journalism in the in the Pioneer Press? Uh, well, yeah, I, I had, uh, and I'm I'm basically you know a college English major, studied literature, I have a, a master's degree in English literature, which I don't necessarily recommend for anybody, but I have one, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I had always thought about being a, a writer, but I hadn't really. I, I thought, well, maybe I'll be you know a serious novelist or something like that, and and um, I sort of fell into journalism. I never took a journalism course, but after I got out of, I spent a year in graduate school, and I didn't really like it at all and I'm sitting on done with this. I I can't I can't take this anymore. And and so I fell into journalism and then uh gradually also fell into um writing about architecture and design and and then the novels became kind of my second career after I had written a number of, of architecture books and I've kind of gone back and forth. Uh, I'm kind of unusual. I, I, I'm just preparing a new website, which should be up in a month or so, and it, it's just it's divided into just two sections, history and mystery. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and the history and the mystery connect in, in various ways, but there's like two really separate bodies of work. Um, and I go back and forth uh, typically in, in kind of blocks. I wrote the first five Sherlock's, I think, in six years. And then, um, then I went back to writing architecture for ten years. There wasn't; uh, it was ten years between, I think, my fifth novel and my sixth. And then Strongwood, I just kind of sneaked in here. I'm actually, I've got another big architecture book coming out in the fall, and then another one in 2015 that's just eating up all my time. So, I'm trying to decide at this point whether, and once I get done with the second architecture book, um, if I want to stay with that or. Uh, devote more time to mystery writing in my decline because <laughs> I'm not getting any younger. Um, and so, so, I don't tell, know so tell me, point. tell me about the, tell me about the, um, the two nonfiction books. You said one's coming out. Oh yeah, one is um, uh, a book on uh, on Great Minnesota Houses, a very lavish um, coffee table book that um, is financed by a foundation in Wisconsin that did a, a beautiful book on Wisconsin homes, and so they're doing one on Minnesota, and so it'll be uh, a lovely book with wonderful color, new color images of great houses and people. You know, you know, people love house books. Sure. Uh, um, and then the second one, however, is completely different. It's uh, it's on mid-century modernism, and so it's about the fifties and about the architecture and the houses uh, of the fifties, which have, are becoming, as all things do, come back very popular with the thirty-somethings. 
and people are buying mid-century houses and saying, "Ooh, these are cool," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and what? It, what? I, I'll be honest. I mean, my knowledge of architecture, yeah, you're not an architect, is, is yeah, very slim. But, but, but what? What would that style be referred to? Or, um... uh, well, it's basically what we think of. If you think of kind of the modern, open, flowing house, the kind of houses, the big ramblers from the '50s, um, the, the flat roof, big windowed, uh, open plan houses. That's that style, and and the the sort of uh, a lot of interesting churches were done modernist churches. I went to school at um, St. John's University, and they have a famous, world famous mid century church there by uh, Marcel Breuer, a uh, Hungarian architect who also did the um, Whitney Museum in New York, among other things. A world class architect and did this fabulous mid century church that's a one of a kind, and so it, it's 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 modernism, um, but sort of the early phase of uh, earlier phase of modernism in right. this country, and it's it's become very fashionable. The houses, in particular, people are especially the high style architect design houses. People who are tired of all the neo Victorian stuff, and you know, are looking at these houses and saying, "Hey, they're kind of cool," you know, and you get sure. the right furniture in them, you know. <laughs> they can be very nice. Um, so, uh, so I'll be doing a book on on that. It's, you know, and, and for anybody who grew up in the fifties, as I did, we all went to those fifties schools, those big brick schools with the one, you know, the one floor plan and the big high schools. All that stuff, all of that stuff. If you're my age, I'm sixty six. Uh, anybody who grew up in the fifties or lived in the fifties, we tend to think of all that stuff as just all, sort of always being there now. But it really was a a complete departure from what the kind of architecture we had had before in schools and churches and everything else. So, so it's 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 for your architecture and design buffs. But I'll have a little fun with it too. I also have a little fun with my architecture books. And, and 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 how did how did you get how did you get interested and in, and in how did you start writing about architecture in the Twin City? Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect, um, but then I um, sort of. Decided later in life that you know uh, uh, maybe I'm, maybe that's not for me, and so I ended up as an English major. And then um, you know I always tell people what you're interested in when you're 12 years old is what you're going to be interested in when you're 50 years old in the long run. And and it kind of my interest kind of came back to bite me, and I uh, wrote my first book about architecture uh, in 1985, a little a little book about a famous bank building in Minnesota at the time by the great Chicago architect, Louis Sullivan. And so I got into sort of the whole Prairie School, Frank Lloyd Wright thing, particularly as my main area of interest and expertise, and that's some very Midwestern-based um, style, uh, modern style. So kind of got into that and um, just was just interested in it. You know, and I, I, why, who knows, why, I, right, I, always, right. I never know why people are interested in things. It's always one of the most sure. amazing things about life to me is the, the different things that people out of the blue are interested in and you never quite figure out why, you know. Sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, so I, I, know, my, I know. my I little sideline and so yeah, I've, uh, I've um, yeah, written quite a few Quite a few books on uh, on architecture, and uh, you know they're very popular books locally. Um, I have one that's um, been in print now for twenty was it twenty three or twenty four years, and it's up over twenty five thousand copies. And it's a fifty dollar book. Wow. Um, 
Well, well, I I know from your from from doing research for this interview that you wrote a a a nonfiction book, the Lost Twin Cities, which you yeah, that's that's the one that's been around forever. Yeah, and that'll that'll probably be in print forever. That's just kind of a local classic. But so, uh, what's that that book about? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. It's it's a book about um, buildings and places in Minneapolis, St. Paul are gone. Uh, Like most American cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul have destroyed zillions of buildings and some of them very very wonderful buildings over the years and particularly in their downtowns and so um you know there have been books called lost new york and lost chicago and you know whatever and so it's kind of in that in that mode but but looking for people who are from a particular city it can be fascinating to go back and say wow look at this stuff <laughs> that isn't here anymore uh so it's it's kind of a nostalgia a little trip in, in nostalgia but also uh, for a lot of people um, just aren't aware how how rich the architectural environments in American cities were at one time, and how much is in many cases has been has been lost to um, everything you can think of over the years, but often just pointless destruction. Sure. Well, um, you- and I also did a book. Uh, um, I don't know if you've seen this one, but it's it's actually my favorite book called Strange Days, Dangerous Nights which is about um, speed graphic photography, newspaper photography in the 1950s, and um, has uh, this book, uh, see if you can run across it somewhere, has some just absolutely amazing black and white uh, Ouija-style photographs from St. Paul, Minneapolis. Um, the, The kind of gory coverage that newspapers did in the 50s is just amazing <laughs> what they would put in the paper compared to what you see today um it was much wilder much much bloodier uh much more graphic and um i did a book on just looking at uh picking some photographs out from the pioneer press library essentially and um man oh man the stuff is incredible and so that was a lot of fun so i've done some books like that as well too but mostly either architecture or mystery are my two architecture architecture history and mystery are my two rather odd combined things well well, with your knowledge of the twin cities i know this might be a tough question to answer but i'm curious if if someone had not visited the city before and only had like a day or two to spend there what what should be on their list of places to visit well i think uh for the two cities, if you are going to Minneapolis, um, the riverfront is fascinating. That uh, they've now uh, developed uh, around the old milling district at St. Anthony Falls. Minneapolis was exists because of the big waterfall in Mississippi River, the only waterfall in Mississippi, and that's what turned the city into a giant center of flour milling, the biggest flour milling city in the world for half a century. And uh, the history of that milling and uh, the waterfall and the the historic buildings and mills all around there is, is just really incredible. Also, the Guthrie Theater is down there now, um, and it's it's really the I think the, the heart of Minneapolis and, the, and a very cool place to see. You go over to St. Paul, which you should too. Um, probably the the highlight of St. Paul is what's called Summit Avenue, which is the big street of mansions near which F. Scott Fitzgerald grew up. I live about a mile and a half from where F. Scott Fitzgerald was born. Uh, and where Garrison Keeler, by the way, now lives in one of the Summit Avenue mansions. And um great stretch of Victorian uh, mansions, um, the, one of the best preserved Victorian residential streets in the United States, um, probably in the top three or four. 
And also the giant uh, St. Paul Cathedral, which is one of the largest churches in the United States, kicks off some of that. And so that's a great place, especially Twin Cities are especially lovely in summer, <laughs> which lasts about two months. And, um, you know, uh, we're still struggling here to get out of the 60s. But um, um, for, for visitors who come during high season, June, July, August, September, um, those are the two things I would recommend. Get over, see the Minneapolis Riverfront, enjoy some of the culture over there. Come over to St. Paul, see some of that, and take a little walking or biking uh, trip and look at all the mansions. You can tour some of the uh, big mansions, including James J. Hill's mansion, where my first um, Sherlock Holmes novel was set, uh, began in the James J. Hill mansion, Sherlock Holmes and the Red Demon Hill is the one who hires uh, homes for that case, and uh, and that mansion, which is enormous, is um, open to the public and uh, definitely worth seeing. That's great. Well, well, given your given your career, uh, w- what advice would you have for aspiring writers who would like no. to? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know uh, the basics. Uh, you know, if you want to be a writer, you got to be a, a reader first. Uh, and um, then I would say, you know, um, if you're really interested in, in, in doing something, try to um, try to choose wisely in terms of, of where you think your strengths would be uh, in terms of format, whether it's um, uh, essay, uh, serious fiction, poetry, mystery fiction, whatever, whatever your type of writing, um, kind of figure out first what it is that that you think you could be best at doing, and that would give you the most pleasure and satisfaction. Um, and then you just have to go out and, and, and write. I mean, you know, if you uh, want to be a mystery novelist, you have to write a mystery novel, even if it's not going to get published. And even people like John Sanford have unpublished mystery novels. I've got two, three of them sitting around. <laughs> um, because that's a, the other way you learn is, to, is just by doing um uh try to find some some good other writers to to critique um try to develop your own strengths um uh, grow a, a style and i think it takes a while for most people to that to, to come to come fully out um and and just you know devote a lot of time to your to the craft i mean it, it's uh, people, I think, put too much emphasis on inspiration. That's fine, and there are you know people who are dazzlingly inspired and, and with dazzling imaginations. But a lot of it is just a discipline. I mean, uh, a craft and a discipline. And and if you're especially, you know, if you're interested in writing a great American novel and inspiration and imagination and brilliance and all that, um, that those are things that you can't practice or or learn. Some people just have them, but. But you can practice and learn how to be a better writer of any kind, and you can certainly practice and learn uh, how to be a good mystery writer. And the other thing I would say, if you want to write historic mystery fiction, for example, uh, then read a lot of it first. Get a sure. sense of how better writers have done it, um, what what they do, what some of the techniques are, what some of the approaches are, and that's a good way to you know to do it. And then yeah, then just go out and do it. Um, you know, devote block your time, figure out a way to do it. Uh, I wrote my first novels. Well, I, well, all my first novels. I was also working, you know, full time as a journalist. So it was a, it was something I could only do when I was young. You can't do it when you're <laughs> when you're older. You just don't have the amount of energy. But 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 yeah, you have to. You really have to spend some time at it. Um, and then you know, getting published in this day and age in mystery novel, it's really tough. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff out there. 
Um, I know some very good mystery writers, even locally here, who are just not finding publishers anymore and are doing online books and everything else because it's, it's so tough and it's it's a it's really a tough field to make to make money in now because the the mid list has kind of gone away and so it's it's kind of you know you've got the really you know, people like John who are way up in the stratosphere and earning enormous amounts of money and, and you know, I have no objections at all because he's, you know, John's just really, really good. And he deserves it. But um, it, it, it's tough to break into that that level. There's only, oh, yeah. Yeah. only a few people that do. And, and so most writers, you know, if, if your dream is of making a fortune, think again, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to do it because you want to do it and, 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 and you like it and, and, and then try to, you know, try to maneuver your way and, and get a publisher for a lot of writers. I think you're probably better off, you know, for, for a first book, trying to get a, a, a regional publisher or a, a local publisher rather than, than hoping you can get something nationally. But, you know, some people do every, you know, every year somebody breaks through with a, big successful book so it can it can still be done but it's 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 a long odds game you know sure. uh, as i and i think most people who are you know say they're in their 20s and think about becoming a writer or, or you know trying to, to break into a particular genre they know that it's a tough thing to do but if you got you know if you got the talent and you find the right book i wish i would have thought of that harry potter thing <laughs> <laughs> I'd spend more time in Florida in the winter had I thought of the Harry Potter thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it's 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 a struggle. It's a lot of work. Uh, it's it's never easy. And and but you know, you can you can build a career over it. But it's, it helps. You know, it helps to have a paying job at least while you're while you're trying to establish yourself. And you know, it's just like like anything else. It's um, uh, but yeah, people do it and. Uh, I've been at it for a long time, and uh, you know, I made no fortune at it, but I've enjoyed it, and um, you know, it's what I do. So, great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Larry Millette, author of many nonfiction books about the Twin Cities, including the AIA Guide to the Twin Cities, and Once There Were Castles, Lost Mansions, and Estates of the Twin Cities. Larry's latest novel, Smartwood, a crime dossier, Strongwood. Is in, oh, Strongwood. Sorry, Strongwood. Yeah. A crime dossier is in bookstores now, so grab a copy. Larry, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. Great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.